We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. Turn our Bibles, please, to Ezekiel 25, if you would, please. Ezekiel 25. Uh, If you were to look at an outline for the book of Ezekiel, you would notice that we have entered into a new segment of the book. There are eight chapters now from 25 to 32, which are uh, Ezekiel's prophecies against the nations. And so it's going to be a long segment of text that has to do with various nations. We see here Ammon and Moab and Edom and Philistia, um, the Philistines, and they will be the subject of the prophecies here, but then there'll be more uh, in the coming chapters up through 32. So we read in chapter 25 in our continuing quest to read through the Bible, Ezekiel 25, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, And the Son of Man, remember, is a favorite uh, moniker for Ezekiel in this case. Don't be confused about Son of Man in the New Testament and Son of Man here. This is uh, God referring to Ezekiel as an an offspring of humankind. And uh, that phrase is uh, also used of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. It has some uh, important theological implications there. But here he addresses him, Son of Man, Set your face against the Ammonites. And prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, aha, against my sanctuary when it was profaned, and against the land of Israel when it was desolate, and against the house of Judah when they went into captivity. Indeed, therefore, I will deliver you as a possession to the men of the east. And they shall set their encampments among you and make their dwellings among you. They shall eat your fruit and they shall drink your milk. Now let me pause there and just say, that teaches us an important principle. Uh, You don't laugh at the calamity of other people. They were mocking the children of Israel and laughing at their calamity, as indicated in verse number three. They were pleased when the bad things were happening to the nation of Israel, and that's that's not a good place to be. Uh, Certainly not generally for us as believers to be pleased at the calamity of others, and and most certainly not for these people during this time in the Old Testament who were pleased at the demise of the nation of Israel. I also, um, well, let me read on here. Uh, Verse number five, and I will make Rabbah a stable for camels and Ammon a resting place for flocks. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, because you clapped your hands, stamped your feet and rejoiced in heart, with all your disdain for the land of Israel. Indeed, therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. I will cut you off from the peoples and I will cause you to perish from the countries. I will destroy you and you shall know that I am the Lord. So the other thing that I wanted to say was that the Lord here is addressing the nations. We might 
think sometimes that the Bible is addressed only to the nation of Israel or to believing people, but that's not the case. Sometimes God weighs in on the affairs of the world and tells them, for instance, you people need to repent and turn away from your sin. We, we do the same thing today when we confront the unbelieving world with their sin. Now, of course, we know they don't like that, but they need to hear it. And these people needed to hear what God had to say as well. Now, the next segment, verse 8. Thus says the Lord God, because Moab and Seir say, Look, the house of Judah is like all the nations. Therefore, behold, I will clear the territory of Moab of cities, of the cities on the frontier, the glory of the country, Beth Jeshemot, Baal Meon, and Kir, Kirjath, sorry, Kirjathayim. To the men of the east, I will give it as a possession, together with the Ammonites, that the Ammonites may not be remembered among the nations. And I will execute judgments upon Moab, and they shall know that I am the Lord. There's another point there. God does these things so that the nations will understand that he is God, that he is God, not they. You know, today we have, we have a very huge uh, problem in society at large. We have what I'll call for our purposes this morning a God complex. We in society think we are God. We can control the environment. We can control uh, the pandemic. I mean... Can anybody just look at the evidence and see we cannot control the environment? We cannot control the pandemic. We cannot control anything because we are weak. We are humans. We are not the sovereign God. And so I encourage us to be humble in our hearts and minds because of those things. We should not have a God complex. Verse 12, thus says the Lord God, because of what Edom did against the house of Judah by taking vengeance, and has greatly offended by avenging itself on them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I also will stretch out my hand against Edom, cut off man and beast from it, and make it desolate from Timon. Dedan shall fall by the sword. I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel, that they may do an Edom according to my anger and according to my fury, and they shall know my vengeance, says the Lord God. And then the last segment of this chapter Verse 15, thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines dealt vengefully and took vengeance with a spiteful heart to destroy because of the old hatred. There's an intergenerational hatred that's going on. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines and I will cut off uh, the Cherethites and destroy the remnant of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them with furious rebukes and they shall know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. God be praised in the reading of his word. I'm going to take us to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. And while you're going there to Philippians 2, I want to say greetings to Mark and Christina. I see you way back there. God bless you folks. Thank you for coming. Yeah. Eric and Marissa. Thank the Lord that you are here. Good to see you today. Your grandpa work on you or what? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, glad to see you, Richard. I noticed that you're here. Yeah, thank you for coming. God bless you. I know I'll start calling out names and somebody's going to feel left out. Well, Thurman, I didn't call your name. I didn't have to call your name. 
We all know he's here, somebody says. <laughs> all right, I think I've, I think I've got all the, uh, all the suspects in view here. All right, let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. Verse 19, the text of Scripture says this, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. So we're going to do two things with this message, Roman numeral 1 and Roman numeral 2, kind of almost standalone, if you will, messages. The first has to deal with Paul's circumstances. We're going to try to unravel what's happening with Paul and his imprisonment and what he's going to do with Timothy. And then also, maybe I should read verse 25. He says, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. So they're really, there's Paul, there's Timothy, there's Epaphroditus, and we're going to see what happens with them. Uh, here in the message this morning, but we're also going to look at that middle segment of the text which talks about the character of Timothy, and you'll see the burden that I have there for our church family as we uh, think about those verses. But first of all, starting in verse 19, it says, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Paul is stuck where he's at right now. Uh, it's not like he can get... Um, well, what do they call those things at some prisons now? Weekend passes or something like that? Uh, you know, there's no evening pass out of his prison where he can go, uh, you know, off to uh, see the Philippian believers. He's in prison. He can't go back to Philippi to see his beloved friends. In fact, there's a possibility that he may never see them again. He does not know for sure. Now, he trusts, as we saw in chapter 1, that he will be able to get out of prison, which we believe historically did occur, and that he got out for a while, ministered some more, and then was put back into prison by the authorities, and then was killed in that second imprisonment. But he may, from his perspective right now, die as a martyr, be poured out as a drink offering. You remember that uh, back from uh, earlier in chapter 2, where we looked at, and that's in verse number 17. Yes, and if I am being poured out, you know, in other words, if I am about to die here and I'm going to be kind of the, the topper to your ministry by pouring out my life on top of it, then, you know, so be it. Uh, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be glad. I'm going to go to heaven and be with the Lord Jesus, which is far better. But, he says, I, I, you know, I feel like I need to stay and need to have more fruit among you and, and, and his other ministry. So there he is. But while he's in prison, he would like to know how the church is getting on in Philippi. As you could imagine, if you put yourself in his shoes, if part of your life's work was in jeopardy, was under persecution, if you, know, you were a church planter and you had to leave a place, have you ever thought of yourself in that? You know, kind of just imagining, what if I were starting a new church? What if we had nothing? You know, everything was nuked, and we had to start over from scratch. And I was a church planter. I mean, I was starting a church. 
and then suppose further that you then had to leave that church because the people in the town ran you off. What would you think? Would you be concerned for those people there? Would you want to know how it's going on for them? How, how is their love for the Lord and how is their service for him doing? Um, that's what he says at the end of 19, in effect, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. It would be a very encouraging thing for the Apostle Paul to hear good news, especially good news, but any news about them. Um, we live in an age saturated with communication, which is, a, which is actually turning into a vice for us. Uh, somebody interestingly said, most of the things that people consume today were produced within the last 24 hours. I'm not talking about movies. They were produced within the last you know, 24 months maybe. But where's the historical perspective? Where's the reading of books that are 100 years old? Where is the, the reading of things that are long-term instead of you know, the, the, the tweets and the text messages and the, you know, the, the blogs that have been just produced within the last, you know, with no perspective of, of history, certainly no divine perspective in them. And uh, Paul didn't have that embarrassment of, uh, of communication tools at his disposal. He had to do it the old-fashioned way, send a messenger and get a message back. The apostle plans to send Timothy to Philippi to hear their news, and then Timothy will bring back that word to Paul in jail. Uh, perhaps not in jail, but let's suppose for the moment that he still is there then Paul would be encouraged by what he hears if he hears that they're doing well. Do you know that the Apostle Paul could use encouragement? Amen. <laughs> he was just a man. This right. of like nature as we are. And we of like nature as he. I'm using the language of James when it talks about us being of men like nature with Elijah, right? And he prayed to God and God answered his prayer. But the Apostle Paul was not a, a, uh, an automata, you know, an automaton with, uh, with no emotions, with no... He would be depressed, he would be encouraged, he would be anxious, he would and had to fight that stuff just like we do, uh, the, the sinful parts of that. And, and so he could use some encouragement. I mean, he's sitting in jail after all, that's not very encouraging. Um, he's helped by uplifting words. And so you are helped by uplifting words. We all are helped by uplifting words. So give each other some uplifting words Keep doing that all the time because God knows how many destructive words we hear in a week, you know, but how many encouraging and uplifting words do we hear? How many testimonies of praise to God from other people and, and such things that would, would buoy his spirits, you know, like we, like we need. Sometimes you're probably feeling, you know, pretty sunken down into the, the depths and a little ballast uh, to... Uh, or is that the right word? Ballast, is that the weight? That's the weight. Yeah, oh, that's right. So whatever the opposite of that is to, to uh, let you uh, come back up to the surface, as it were. Um, you know, let some air into those submarine tanks so you can come back up again. Uh, it's, it's good to hear what God is doing among other people, isn't it? Think about the church there. If Paul, you know, Paul hears from them and they... You know, new people have been added to the church. People have been saved. We've had some baptisms here. Uh, we've had good ministry teaching the word. How encouraging that would be for the Apostle Paul, a blessing and a, and a cause of rejoicing and thanksgiving to God. So before, though, he does that, look at uh, verse 20, uh, 
3. We skip down to the end of our little section here. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. So before he sends Timothy now, he hopes to learn more about his legal fate and then pass that report to Timothy, who will then bring it to the Philippians so that they will get the news, could I say it like this, hot off the press? Just as soon as it's available, they would be able to find out what's going on with the Apostle Paul. They will have that information. Notice, though, that Paul is not so much concerned about them knowing about his sad situation as he is knowing about their situation. He wants to know what's going on with them. And, of course, they would want to know what's going on with him, but he's not in this kind of selfish mode like, I'm going to tell everybody what's going on with me. You know, pity poor Paul. You know, everybody's got to know. No, it's, it's you know, they'll, we'll, we'll pass the information, but Paul really wants to know what's going on with the Philippian believers. And then finally, notice verse 24 in this. We're going to come to kind of boil down the sequence here in a moment, but he says this in 24, I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Wow. So maybe he won't be poured out as a drink offering. In other words, maybe he won't be killed this time in prison. It's still hard for me to imagine that in real life, Christians died at the hands of wicked governments because they're Christians. They didn't murder. They didn't rob any banks. They didn't do anything deserving of death. And we've lived in a place blessedly absent of that kind of persecution, but I suspect that's not going to continue for our future generations, my friends. Um, it's a sad situation. But this, really did, this kind of stuff really did happen. These were issues for Christians. These were issues for, for real-life Christians, like, am I going to make it? Am I going to survive? Am I going to be thrown in jail? Am I going to be killed because I follow Jesus? So he hopes that he'll come to Philippi himself and trusts that God will permit that soon. Notice he says, I trust in the Lord that I myself shall come shortly. And this connects to his earlier statement in 25, uh, 125, sorry, 125, where he says, being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. And then he says in 118, back up even further, he says, um, Oh, did I have put the wrong verse number there? No, I'm not. Yes, well, there's another. I have it quoted here. I must have written the wrong verse number. But anyway, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and supply of the Spirit. And so Paul is confident. He has this kind of built-in confidence in the Lord that he's going to be coming uh, to them. Now, why is that? Well, he believed it was more necessary for him to continue to have some spiritual fruit among the Philippians than it was for him to go to heaven. Now, here's what this all boils down to. I've kind of, I, I studied around this issue and then I figured out, oh, this is what he's saying. This is what's going to happen. Paul is going to send Epaphroditus, verse 25, chapter 2, with the letter that he's writing right here. He's going to send that letter with Epaphroditus to the Philippian church. Timothy is going to follow shortly as soon as Paul finds out what the legal ramifications of his case are, he finds the outcome. Maybe he's going to find out his date of release, his date of parole, if you will, instead of his date of execution. So once he finds that, then he will send Timothy. And then, hopefully last of all, Paul will be able to come as well. And so this part of the letter is just here to, in a sense, in the 
kind of occasion of the letter to explain what's going on. Why am I sending you Epaphroditus and not myself? Well, I'm still in jail. Uh, why not Timothy? Well, we're waiting to find out the latest information about my legal case. Then we'll be able to send Timothy. And so, you know, that's how it's going to kind of work out. Now, as far as application from this text, let me just point out to you two, two details here. They're the same thing said twice. Verse 19, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. And verse 24, I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. I want you to notice that. I trust in the Lord to do this or to do that. These are not name-it-claim-it type promises. Paul is not saying, I know that this is going to happen for sure. He's saying, I trust in the Lord. I'm going to trust God that we're going to be able to do this, that I'm going to be able to send Timothy, and that even myself, I will be able to come. Uh, There's no guarantee, but he believes that God will permit those things to occur. But regardless of whether God does or not, that's right, I knew you were going to say that before you said it. Regardless of whether he saves us from the, the, the furnace that's seven times hotter than whether he saves us or whether he doesn't, we're going to follow God regardless. Paul is saying whether I can send Timothy or whether I can't send Timothy or whether I can come or whether I can't come, I still trust God's sovereignty. I trust in God. God's going to do the right and best thing. If God does not permit Paul to go or he does not permit Timothy to go, Paul's not going to be heartbroken or fall into a slew of despond because it's God who makes the ultimate call on things, doesn't he? So he knows the end from the beginning. God is sovereign, and we know we aren't supposed to second-guess him. So if God has decided not time for Timothy to go, not time for Paul to go, that must be the best thing for whatever reason that God is is ordained, has ordained for the circumstances of this world. Now, maybe you have, you personally have, some things like this. I want to do fill in the blank. I want to do X okay, in your life. Can you convert those to, I trust in the Lord that I will be able to do X? I may not be able to do X. God may not permit those circumstances to come about, um, he may redirect me into some other thing, but you take those things, my goal is blank. I trust in the Lord that he'll allow me to accomplish blank. Do that transformation. Yeah, it is James chapter 4. If, if God wills, we'll do this or that. Not, I'm going to do this, you know, on my own. Uh, now, first of all, when you think about that, Is that thing that you want to do something that you can associate with God and with trust in God? You know, if if you want to do something, I'll just put it out flatly, sinful, you can't say, I trust in the Lord that I will be able to do this sin. Okay, so that immediately takes that off the table. Okay, that's out. Second, are you willing to let God carry out his plan about that thing? You know, I want to achieve this in my education. No, I trust in the Lord that he will allow me to accomplish this. Or I want to accomplish this in my uh, career or this in my, uh, this hobby that I want to do. Or this, I trust in my family that this will come about or just whatever. There's a million different things that you might be thinking collectively as a church. Um, Are you willing to let God carry out his plan about that matter, even if it does not match your plan? 
That's really when the test comes. I mean, who is sovereign? You or God? Most people think they're sovereign. They're all, them themselves. You know, they're in control. They've got the wheel. They're doing the driving. No, the reality is God's driving the car. You might think you are, but you're just in the back seat with one of those toy kid ones, you know, that thinks you're driving. Uh, you're, you're not in control of things, okay? Now, if you're in a waiting room type situation, you know, if you're in a waiting room, if you're waiting on God, uh, are you willing to joyfully wait while you see how God will finish your situation? You know, Paul was in the waiting room. It's called jail in his case. You might be in the waiting room because you have a cancer diagnosis. You might be in the waiting room because you're waiting to see some family member become a Christian or whatever. Are you willing to joyfully wait while God works out the matter? Um, Imagine, uh, you know, in the book of Ruth, and Naomi tells Ruth, just, it was in chapter 3, I think, just wait and see how God deals with the matter. The man is going to take care of it today, Boaz. You know, just wait. You wait. That's your role. You've done what you can do, and we'll just wait and pray and joyfully wait and see what God will do. So if you're in a waiting room, you know, are you willing to joyfully wait while God does that? Are you trusting in him to fill in the blank, whatever that thing is? Fourth, if you're in, not in a waiting room, but in a situation that requires your activity, you're, 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 are you energetically pursuing what God wants you to do while you're waiting for his disposition of that matter? You know, pressing forward no matter what, you know, difficulties may arise, um, you know, life is not always a waiting room. Oftentimes, life is a busy thing that you're doing, serving God. Are you going to be busy about serving God as you wait for the statement, I'm trusting in the Lord to do X? You know, I'm trusting in the Lord that he will bring all of us along in the faith so that we'll be more mature this year than we were last year. I'm trusting in the Lord that he's going to bring some new people into the church. But that doesn't happen just by sitting, you know, in the church building. That happens by us going out, by, by us inviting, by us calling people to come to faith in Christ. Those are the means that God uses. So am I willing to, to put that into the hands of God and either be in the waiting room or be active about it as he works. And finally, note that phrase again, in the Lord. I trust in the Lord. I trust in the Lord. You are in Christ if you're a saved person, right? If you are a Christian, you're in the Lord. You're in Christ. Now that, we could go off on a rabbit trail and talk about the doctrine of what's called union with Christ. And we could teach on that for several sermons. But we're not going to do that. What we're going to do today is, until we get to the second section of our message, is just say this. When you're in Christ, that impacts everything that you do and that you say and that you think and your whole approach to life. Being in Christ affects your activities, your actions, your desires. All is influenced by this fact. And although I can't get into a whole definition of what it means to be in Christ, basically means to be united with him, one way you can understand it is by thinking of the opposite. What is the opposite of being in Christ? Being in Adam, being in the world, 
being in the flesh, being in sin. No, you don't want all that. You want to be in Christ. And that affects how you think, how you plan, how you look at things, and how you trust that, well, you know, that didn't work out, but I trust in the Lord that something else will work out. Now, verses 20 to 22, right in the middle of the passage, I jumped over those because they really are a separate subject for our purposes this morning. Sandwiched in between his circumstances is a note about the apostle's protege, Timothy. Timothy, uh, you know, and how he was a suitable messenger for the mission that Paul was going to assign him to. And so look at verse 20. Paul says, I'm going I'm to send Timothy. Do it shortly. You know, they're going to get the letter. They're going to read it. They're going to say, oh, Timothy's on his way. You know, he's, he's planning to come. They knew him already. They knew it was a good thing. It wasn't a bad thing at all, but it was, you know, just the plan for how Paul was ministering to them. And uh, so Paul commends Timothy to them, and he says, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Now, they might think, well, why isn't Paul coming? Well, they're finding out in the letter that he can't because he's in jail. And, uh, you know, they probably scratch their head and say, Paul, <laughs> he's always ending up in jail. He was in jail in our city in Philippi. Now he's in jail in Rome. You know, he can't stay out of trouble. Well, they knew that he wasn't in trouble, that he was just preaching the gospel. But um, so Paul is sending the substitute teacher. And he's commending the substitute teacher and saying, he's just like me. He's just a chip off this block, and so you don't have to worry. You know, he's doing the same things among you that I would be doing. He's just caring for you just exactly like I would. Timothy genuinely cared and concerned himself with the well-being of others. Now, this care was a pastoral care. He cared about the flock in Philippi. He cared about them as a pastor, as a shepherd does for his sheep. The definition of this care was a, is genuine concern, it's sincere attention, it's watchfulness, it's attention, it's, it's prayerfulness about the people. Um, I give some examples uh, here in the notes. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is one example. Uh, maybe I'll just read that one. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and... Uh, it's verse 25. Uh, yeah, that there would be, Paul's talking about one body with many members united together, and he says that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. The same word is used in Matthew 6.34 where Jesus says, don't care or worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care or worry about its own things. And really what he's saying is, don't be, he's using the same word kind of in a play on words, using it in two ways. Don't be anxious about tomorrow because tomorrow is going to care, not in an anxious way, tomorrow will take care of its own things. That second use of the word care. It'll watch over its own stuff. Timothy was a guy who watched over and cared for the people of Philippi, unlike as far as Paul was concerned, unlike anybody else, Timothy was an unusual fellow, a very unusual fellow. Think of him back from Acts chapter 16, a young man. Uh, mother was a Jewess. Father was a Greek. He was a disciple. Paul saw a promise in this young man, and he took him along, and Paul, what Paul saw in promise turned out to be an actuality, what, it was, what was the case. Imagine that. 
Um, my burden in this part of the message is simply this. God wants you to be more like Timothy and less like the way you used to be before you were saved. He wants you to be more like Timothy and less like what you used to be. Christian teaching, Christian doctrine is that you care for others. We usually think about doctrine like, you know, the Trinity or the hypostatic union, or all these kind of complicated things. Christian theology is that, but it's more than that. In fact, in what I'm trying to say is Christian theology boils down to how do we live for God? How do we live according to sound doctrine? And one way is we care about other people, and the question is, do you? Do you? Bear with me as I try to flesh that out just a little bit. Other people, verse 21, were self-seeking, not seeking the things which belong to Christ Jesus. Now, if you take Timothy, and he's kind of a model for us, the exact opposite end of the spectrum would be a guy like Demas. Demas, Paul says elsewhere, left me because he, have, he has loved this present world. He's gone. He's, he's lost. He's finished. Okay. Broadly speaking, Paul now says, all seek their own interests. Now, we know that by saying that, Paul is not broad-brushing every single person because Paul's not like that. Timothy's not like that. Epaphroditus is not like that. And many others in the New Testament that would be people who don't seek their own things. But Paul is saying the, the general pattern, the vast majority of people are, are, are swallowed up with their eyeballs on themselves. They just can think about their own things not the things which are of Jesus Christ. The self-seeker's habit is to focus attention on their own lives, their own concerns, their own desires, their own goals, their greed, and so on. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, if you just look back there in verse number um, 14, and it's actually not 14, it's actually uh, 15 and 16, but the context starts in 14. Some of the brothers had become confident by Paul's chains and were more bold to speak the word. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some from goodwill. <clears throat> Excuse me. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. Those are ones who were seeking their own things. They were seeking to gain a following, we said when we preached that section for themselves. They wanted a, people following them, not just following Christ, certainly not following Paul. They had sinful personal motives. Despite that, Paul was glad that something of the truth was being spoken, but the motivation stunk. The things of Christ Jesus are different than the things of greed and personal concern and covetousness and all of that. They include holiness and loving God loving others, keeping the commands of God, hunger to know God's word. That's a thing, a thing that's uh, consistent, with, with, consistent with being in Christ and watching out for the spiritual needs of others. That's what Paul is talking about when he says, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Paradoxically, we can learn about how to seek the things of others by thinking about how we were before we were saved seeking our own things. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, husbands and wives, husbands, love your wives as yourself. 
You think about yourself, guys. You care about yourself. You nourish yourself. You cherish yourself. Well, you do that same thing toward your wife. In other words, think about others, that other person, that woman that's in your home, that one that you profess to love, then do so. Be, care, be caring about that dear person in your home. Um, think of how you were focused on yourself before and even still are today. Then turn that into an energetic pursuit of helping others. The natural state is to care for one's own things. The spiritual state is to care for the things of others, the things of others. Now look at verse 22. But you know his proven character. He's been tested, long tested, and found to be a a good follower of Christ to this Timothy. And Paul says, he is like a son with his father serving in the gospel. He is a serious co-worker. He is not a lightweight. You know, this is not a flaky guy here, this Timothy. He served like a son to a father. Paul is reminding the church of this, maybe because they'd like to see Paul himself come, but Timothy will have to do, and he's a very good, exactly like-minded son in the faith, and he would do well as a substitute. Now, we have to close with a couple of applications Remember I said my burden in this part of the sermon is simply this, that you would be more like Timothy, caring for the state of others and not so much your own things. So here's some examples, classic example. I'm deciding whether to go to church today. Not me. Boy, if I'm deciding that, we have problems, okay? You know what I mean. Uh, if I, I'm sitting here deciding, should I go to... No, I just feel like rolling over in the bed, hitting the, 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 the alarm button, actually smashing the alarm so it won't ever do that again to me. And the, Yeah, that's right. I don't want to go out there. It's too dangerous today, whatever. No, in fact, today I woke up, and all week I've been looking forward to be here at the church, you know, and to share the baptism class with the young people and, and share this with, with you folks. But... You know, put yourself in the eye here. I'm deciding whether to go to church today. In in making this decision, do I think only about myself? Or do I think about the other people at the church and how I might be a blessing to them? This is the diagnostic. You just ask yourself, when you get up in the morning, am I going to go to church today? Well, I don't want to, and I don't feel like it, and I'm too busy, and I've got other things to do. And what about, what about the people at the church? They would love to see me. I would love to see them. I'd love to be a, an encouragement to them, give them some uplifting words. You know, I, 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 or them, them, them. This is the diagnostic. Do I focus on how they will be, you know, a detriment to me, or do I overcome that by faith in Christ and consider, do I genuinely care for others in how I am making my decision. This is the in the inside of your brain. You know, what gets the highest uh, place, the I or the others, the me or the them? Um, I'm, I'm deciding uh, how to spend my family's finances. Do I think of others in the family or outside of the family or just of myself? I'm thinking about partaking in some entertainment. 
Am I thinking of others around me and their things or just my own pleasure? As I, as I think of others, I hope I do think of others, but as I do, am I concerned for their spiritual well-being or are my thoughts focused simply on the earthly realm? You know, the, the, the things of the flesh, the things which our brother's fond of calling the sensual things, not sexual things, sensual things, the things that you can touch and taste and see and hear. The, the, in other words, the worldly kinds of things, the five senses kinds of things. Am I, am I just focused there? Um, when, I, when I consider testifying about Jesus, am I paralyzed with fear because of me and what I, I don't like to be uncomfortable and all that, or am I concerned about the well-being of others? That's Timothy's mindset. Do I overcome my hesitancy to be a testifier of Jesus because of the deep need of others, you know, not my own felt deep need to be comfortable? Yeah, so this is the mindset we're trying to get at. I'm trying to help you to think through how to process in your brain how you're, you know, when you're in the midst of it you know, in the midst of the argument at home or something at work, and you, and you stop and think, is this me or is this others? Is this me or is this others? How, how are you going to do this? How are you going to do this? Like everything else in life, you cannot accomplish it by sheer force of will. You know, just say, I am going to think about others. What's wrong with that sentence? <laughs> I. I'm going to do this, so I am going to be a better person. I'm going to look more like the person pastor's talking about up there. No, it must be accomplished in the power of God by his indwelling spirit. You can enable this Timothy trait, this Timothy character in yourself, by asking God for help to seek the things of Christ and to take care for the things of others in addition to having to you know, maintain your own uh, life and things. Remember, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And you have got to, just like with everything else, if you're struggling against any sin, whether it's the sin of selfishness, which is kind of what we're talking about here, or the sin of some addictive thought process or behavior or the sin of some other thing, you have to, you have to defeat it by faith, by trusting in God, trusting in God to help you by his spirit through his word to make progress in that area and not just say, you know, I'm going to do my good work for the day and I'm going to just, I'm just going to muscle through this and I'm going to make it happen. There is a place for determination like we have in the bulletin and, and being serious and committed and energetic in the pursuit of holiness, but you have to do that with the help of God's spirit. And that's what Timothy had learned. And that's what Paul had helped to teach him, and that's what Paul knew as well. And that's what made him a person who was like-minded with Paul, who sincerely cared for the estate of others. You be the same and apply some of those, those thoughts that we shared about how you make decisions and how you think of things to be like Timothy here, the model that we're trying to uphold to us today. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the privilege of looking into the Word and being challenged by it. I pray that as we go from here, we'll be just um, that much better, uh, more like Christ, and that we are like-minded with him in being concerned for others. 
Speaking of being concerned for others, there's no better example than the Lord Jesus Christ, who had he been only concerned for himself, would have sat up in heaven in the glory there and not lifted a finger on behalf of sinful wretches like us. But instead, he humbled himself and became obedient to the death on the cross because he was concerned for others. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for others. And so I pray that we will be of like mind with him in that regard. In Christ's name, amen.